You're listening to Coach Your Brains Out by Gold Medal Squared. This is part two of our interview with the associate head volleyball coach at the University of Miami, Casey Kreider. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. That was helpful to have you kind of go through serve receive like the two different models could you do one more do it with uh serving yeah you know that one uh you think of serving a uh, little bit not a little bit it's it's a closed loop skill if you wanted to use that open loop versus closed loop uh dichotomy um i think that this one is one that people have constrained really people coach has been using constraints forever um and even as in a theoretical description instruction technically is a constraint that's a that's a task constraint or instructional constraint that's going to mod that's going to modify the emergent behavior right um but uh if you've ever put up a, a piece of elastic across like the antennas or whatever and asked them to serve it under it to serve it flatter um you know if you've ever said hey this serve has to be clean or your team can't win the rally something like that if you're focusing on hitting a clean serve you you have to hit it clean that's a constraint um, that's a constrained activity or, or an addition of a constraint, uh, to an activity. And again, what, what constraints are used for is to, uh, direct the, the learner's attention, you know, and you could even argue direct, uh, direct the learner's focus of attention, you know, hardest stuff and Gabby Wolf stuff, um, towards more relevant information in the environment, uh, so that better behaviors emerge. And uh, one of the things, uh, and this is a little bit paralleling differential learning and stuff like that, but in, in a, you hear people kind of um, sarcastically say, oh, yeah, you just uh, let the game teach the game, right? And uh, there, there's a lot of value in that. The problem is the game, uh, there's so much noise in the game that the signals, uh, meaning appropriate or functional movement behaviors, uh, they can get lost. They can be tough to find. And that's a place where differential learning uh, kind of finds its theoretical underpinnings. But um, yeah, I think that uh, the idea of a constraint is that you're just trying to, to amplify uh, the information that's probably most relevant and then allow them to figure out how to interact with it to, to succeed, basically. Yeah, that no, makes a lot of sense. So it gets me thinking then, you know, to think of the traditional role of a coach as giving feedback about technique and and helping them, you know, find the fundamentals that are most important. And then when you think about this model where it feels like feedback is less helpful and it, it just, it starts to feel like the coach maybe, is you, are you just a drill creator or like what is your role as a coach in the constraints led approach? That's always the first uh, uh, point of contention when you introduce this, the constraints led approach to somebody who's maybe not familiar with it or who's pretty entrenched in like a tradi more traditional model where the coach is at the center of the knowledge and they disseminate the knowledge and mm -hmm. just do what I do what I'm asking and, and you'll have more success. The, the idea that, it, and that is, it is, it is an offensive concept to a coach uh, who's been in that space where the idea of, well, what, what do you mean? I don't instruct. What's my point then? So I just write a practice plan and go home. <laughs> and it's, it's not that at all. That's a, that's a gross misinterpretation. And I, and one of the things that I, I get frustrated with in the academic community is that people who do in the academic community push back against the constraints led approach. They'll, they'll use that as a reason why it's no good. You're, you're eliminating the role of the coach and nowhere in, in the ecological literature is, is somebody suggesting that, 
that coaches should just design activities and not do anything else. Uh, there is an implication uh, that the, the activity or the task should be the main engine uh, for behavior modification. So if you want behavior to be different, using a task, using an activity is a better way to do it than explicitly instructing it. And so does the, you are, the, the emphasis does shift in a way to activity design, the way you design your activity, the way you design in affordances, uh, so opportunities to interact with the environment. Um, but it's not that I then just say, here's the activity, here are the constraints uh, around the activity, here's how it's constrained, and figure it out. Uh, there's a couple things that you do. First of all, you should be highly, highly in tune with uh, the activity and how the behaviors that are emerging from that activity are manifesting themselves. Are, are they successful? Are they not? And then you start getting into things like the challenge point hypothesis, where is this activity challenging enough? Is the signal, meaning appropriate or functional movement behaviors, is that strong enough or is, are we floundering here? And, uh, and you're going to have to almost likely, uh, more than likely, step in and modify it. You're going to have to manipulate it a lot. Okay, we're going to change the scoring a little bit here, or we're going to, and this may be after doing it a couple times before you, you can get a sense for, for how it's working. But the other thing is that um, I think we got to be really sensitive to what feedback is, because I think a lot of times uh, coaches misinterpret feedback for instruction, and instruction is a type of feedback. But feedback is occurring every single time the athlete does anything. And that can be intrinsic feedback, uh, haptic and kinesthetic and stuff like that. That can be knowledge of results. They can see where the ball went. They probably don't need someone to tell them the ball went over the net if, the, if they saw, saw the ball go over the net. So there's already inter, they're already interacting with all kinds of feedback. And I think sometimes we, we mistake that idea that feedback equals instruction. That's not always the case. Instruction mm -hmm. is augmented you know, feedback. And uh, there's, I guess the, the argument there is, do we need all that augmented feedback when the athlete can self-organize with the feedback that they're getting? Mm -hmm. And what we have found, or what I have found to be particularly effective is uh, most of the, the interactions that I have with the athletes during uh, their practice, during practice, is uh, designed around uh, redirecting their focus of attention and mm -hmm. uh, trying to get them away from something that may be internal uh, towards something that's external. And, uh, that's going to be done through a bunch of different ways, you know, uh, using questions and, uh, you know, asking for their perspective and, and then sometimes saying, Hey, you should think about focusing on X, Y, and Z. And if, if that's, if that's kind of what they need or, or if it's not progressing in the way that we'd want. Uh, but a lot of what I do, um, in activities during activities is going to be observed. And then also, help direct focus of attention, you know, help, help and not, not be so concerned with the explicit movement itself. And then obviously if the, the movement keeps repeating itself, if they found themselves in what's called an attractor state, that's not functional. So they keep moving in a way that is, or that's failing, that, that the outcome of which is, is failure, then they really violated the, the core tenant of an ecological approach, which is practice is a search. You shouldn't be, just repeating and repeating and repeating. There's this guy, Nikolai Bernstein in the twenties and thirties, um, who was a Soviet, um, you know, scientist and researcher who coined the term repetition without repetition. And, uh, that's one of the major underpinning concepts that, that, uh, 
supports a constraints led approach or anything like that. But um, yeah, mostly it's uh, just uh, directing their focus of attention, paying attention to the activity, coming back later and saying, did this activity promote better behaviors or not? And if not, do we stick with it so they can keep searching it? Is the search a functional search? If not, then we probably should not do that activity. And, uh, but yeah, there's an emphasis on designing activities, but it's not just keep your mouth shut and your arms crossed and, you know, swallowing the whistle or anything like that. It's you're, there's a lot of engagement, uh, certainly. So I could see in that, that serving drill, um, you know, helping them get external, you know, helping them lock in on that target. What about when they have some success, would you follow up with maybe, uh, like what helped you do that? How are you able to, or does that get them to be, you know, too focused on maybe a fundamental or a movement? Yeah. You know, there's, uh, Rich Masters, uh, is a guy, I think he's at the university of Hong Kong. Um, he's a researcher who does a lot of work in explicit versus implicit learning. And, uh, the, the, the results of his research over years and years have been really nuanced. It's actually really fascinating. It's, it's impossible to say that implicit or explicit learning is better. Explicit learning being probably something that the athlete is aware of that they could regurgitate theoretically. Like, um, you know, my steps were this size, my arms did this implicit learning tends to be a little more, uh, unaware They wouldn't know exactly why. Like, for example, I would imagine that if you, uh, you know, if you had a glass in front of you, you probably don't know the exact mechanics of what you do with your fingers and your thumbs and, uh, and your hand and your elbow. And your, you probably don't know the exact mechanics of that. That would be something that you've learned implicitly. You know how to pick something up without being able to get into to the nuts and bolts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a worthwhile conversation. And uh, one of the places that I'm way behind on, uh, most of the stuff I'm behind on in terms of understanding, but uh, is understanding like, uh, you know, these, the more traditional sports psychology concepts. I know you had Andy Bass on here and I like some of the stuff that he talked about, but understanding the learner. And, uh, we, we have learners in our gym who are dying for, uh, instructional feedback to soothe some anxiety that they have, that they want explicit instruction. They want the answer. Right. Um, and then some kids are totally fine uh, just saying, Hey, I got this task. I'll figure it out. I'll solve it. And, uh, so understanding that, and then, uh, the nuance that goes into these conversations, like you said, Hey, why did that work? Um, for a kid that, that likes, you know, a little bit more explicit information, that may be a really worthwhile concept for an athlete that is more, Hey, I'm, I'm, this is implicit. Uh, and I'm going to be focused on the task and solving it myself. And, then that may not, you may not get a lot out of that. That may distract their focus of attention from something that's already pretty functional. Hmm. So um, that's a terrible answer in terms of clarity. <laughs> no, but, no. Uh, this stuff's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it is. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm still learning about it. No question. Yeah. Well, you brought up Andy Bass, who, who I've been um, learning a lot from. He's a great yeah. guy with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And um, he, he was telling me and, and teaching me about differential learning and, and talking about bringing more noise into the system. Like even doing things like, you know, close one eye when you set a ball or um, with their baseball players, they're throwing from different arm slots. Uh, Batters are using different stances and even stances that I was like, do they even do that in the game? Um, Which made me think, you know, go into like, is this specific to the task? You know, the stuff that I had previously learned. So I don't know, do you recommend, do you recommend this kind of noise that he's talking about uh, in volleyball? And, and And I, on top of that, our game's a little bit more random than baseball. So I guess that's part of why I wonder that. 
Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot there and uh, yeah. differential learning is I think a really cool concept. Um, and I'm still, it probably been the last six months that I've really uh, dived into it or dove into it or whatever the appropriate word is there. But um, it's uh, so what it is, is it's, co-opting uh, noise. So the, the concept in physics of signals and noise, uh, and, and maybe casually we could define uh, signals as relevant or desired information in the system. And then noise being all the other information that's either irrelevant or undesired in that same system, that, that being the noise. Um, and it's the idea of introducing uh, noise into the learning environment, the, the system that exists as somebody is learning between the organism and the environment, the learner and the environment, introducing noise into that task, organism, environmental construct. And, uh, and it, it relies on this phenomenon that occurs in, in biology and physics and nature called stochastic resonance. And uh, what stochastic resonance is, is it's a little counterintuitive. Intuitively, if you look at this system signal, you know, noise approach, then uh, you would expect if I had a signal that was too weak to identify, I couldn't locate the signal, then you'd expect you'd want to do one of two things. First, I either amplify that signal or I would dampen the noise around it. And that would make the signal more easily detected. But stochastic resonance is this phenomenon that occurs uh, where it's actually the opposite. You have this signal that's too weak to, to detect. The introduction uh, or amplification of the noise that's in the system already, by introducing more noise or amplifying the noise, it actually amplifies the signal and makes it easier to, to then locate. And if you, if you take this concept to a motor learning perspective, we could say the signal is a functional you know, movement solution, a functional movement pattern. So some coordinated movement that's going to achieve the goal, right? The task, that's the signal. All the noise is the, all the other things that we could do that don't achieve the signal. I'm sorry, that don't achieve the, the desired outcome, whatever. They're not functional. And uh, so what you do there, uh, differential learning is, is, is co-opting this concept of stochastic resonance by introducing all the movements that aren't going to promote the, the, a functional solution so that the, 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 the actual functional solutions, the signal, so to speak, uh, becomes more obvious or readily available to the learner. And this is a guy, Wolfgang Schulhorn, uh, which is an awesome name, by the way, it sounds like a Bond villain, but uh, he, he was, uh, he, he's been working on this stuff for probably 15 years or so. And uh, it's really taken off in sports like soccer uh if you follow the champions league at all my my team bayern munich just won uh, the champions league they've been using uh aspects of differential learning for a while now uh, the team that they beat paris saint germain uh their coach is a big believer in differential learning liverpool which just set a record for the most you know points ever in a in an english premier league season they uh, their coach jurgen klopp is a big proponent of uh differential learning. Barcelona, who we all know, you know, Lionel Messi and that squad, uh, big proponent of differential learning. And then baseball, obviously, Andy, uh, that's, baseball is a sport that's actually really applied it in some really fascinating ways. But um, so, yeah, I think uh, I'm really hesitant. And I think a lot of the people in the field are really hesitant to say this is going to be the main means of instruction. 
that we're going to say that we're going to introduce a bunch of noise. Uh, so for example, uh, in passing, we're going to have you stand with your feet completely together. We're going to have you stand with your feet as far apart as possible, maybe on one leg, then on the other leg, we're going to have you, uh, squat all the way down, stand all the way straight. Yeah. One eye closed. That, that would be differential learning. And, uh, there's a couple other, you know, nuances and components to it. Um, using that as the main means of, uh, of learning. I think that the field is hesitant to say, yeah, that's going to be what, what uh, is the backbone of our methodology. But where I found it to be really effective, we've actually used it in some ways uh, that we have saw really profound effects with. Um, if you have, a, if you have somebody who's in a little bit of like a movement slump in that they're just, they're not exploring, right? They're not, if you think of the constraints that approach is learning as an exploration or as a search, if they're just going back to the same thing over and over again, a differential learning approach can be uh, pretty powerful because really a constraints-led approach encourages exploring. <laughs> differential learning approach requires it. You have to do these different uh, activities and different uh, methods of solving this problem. And uh, most, most of them are going to fail. And because you're exploring that, you're, the, 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 the ones that don't fail are going to be amplified. Um, and also, maybe if I was introducing somebody to a skill for the first time, and uh, Jim McLaughlin actually had a really cool concept that he, 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 I would imagine he may still use, but with setters, where he would call it teaching by contrast. And uh, he wants to get somebody to understand, you know, um, how much force to apply uh, as they're setting. He'll have them set one from a really short distance and then one from a really long distance and kind of bounce back and forth between these two. And there's some parallels there to differential learning, uh, where you know, it, if you want to set it perfect from a perfect pass, well, you're not going to use the amount of force you use on a short, uh, short distance set or a long distance set. But the introduction of that into the system would amplify kind of what you need to do to, to deal with the one that's in between the perfect pass. And, um, but yeah, differential learning is fascinating. I think it's really elegant in terms of its theoretical underpinnings. Um, I think it's uh, a little extreme in the sense that you would use this like here, I'm going to go teach my pastors how to pass, and we're going to go through this big, long uh, differential learning approach. Um, but I like we've used it for servers, especially uh, the concept of hitting it clean without spin. Right, that's an important skill in in volleyball. We've used this uh, concept in a couple of forms. For example, uh, instead of saying, "Hey, hit it clean," no, hit it in the palm of your hand, the heel of your hand. No, hit the back of the ball. No more traditional stuff. We've said, "Okay." Uh, Susie, you're going to hit it with topspin. And she's looking at us going, I thought I was supposed to hit it without spin. Yeah, yeah, just hit it with topspin. And she goes, yeah, I hit it with topspin every time. Okay, fine, hit it with topspin. <laughs> now hit it with backspin. Now hit it with sidespin to the right. And now hit it with no spin. Okay, it didn't work. They hit it with sidespin to the left and diagonal spin and topspin and backspin and no spin and sidespin to the right and no spin and topspin. And uh, we've seen a little bit of an effect like that. We flipped that where... Uh, it was the same girl who struggles to hit a clean serve. It's just everything has this little tumble to it that makes it easy to pass. And uh, we did it the opposite. Okay, you're going to hit all of these with no spin. Uh, so toss it with backspin, hit it with no spin. And, you, and I think as, as volleyball people, we've all done this in, for fun in some, you know, where we're peppering with our friends and we're, uh, you know, controlling the ball in different ways that are never going to come up in a game or a competition. But all you're doing there is exploring. And so we'd say, hey, hit it, toss it with backspin, hit it with no spin. Toss it with topspin, hit it with no spin. Toss it with sidespin, hit it with no spin. 
and trying to amplify the signal uh, or the appropriate functional movement solutions that'll allow her to go, hey, there, there is n with no spin. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, a cool, it's a cool concept. Uh, you know, I think it, introducing noise, uh, as, as Dr. David's explained to me, differential learning kind of uh, is designed around the concept of white noise in physics, which is completely random, irrelevant information. A constraint that would encourage that, that concept would encourage discovery learning, strictly discovery learning. And Shilhorn, I think, disagrees a little bit, but the, the consensus in the field is that it's discovery learning. A constraints led approach advocates for guided discovery, and that would be the introduction of what's called pink noise, which is not the relevant information, but it's, it's information that may be in the ballpark. So, using that concept of serving, um, we're not asking her to stand on one leg or close one eye or do anything like that, or you, sometimes you hear, hey, let's use the other side of the body. We're gonna serve with our left hand now. Technically a differential learning approach, but we're gonna target the variability or the noise in the system. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna constrain it a little bit, not make it completely random. We're gonna put her, uh, we're gonna introduce some noise that is a little more relevant to uh, probably the, the actual signal itself. But um, yeah, really, really cool concept, differential learning. Casey, is, do you find there's value in explaining the science behind your methods with your athletes? Like, like how far into the weeds do you go with them? Yeah, you know. That, have you found a sweet spot? Yeah, you know, the, it's hard for me because I'm a little bit of a geek. Maybe at this point, you're probably a lot of a geek. No, come on. This stuff. And so I get really excited about it. I really like talking about stochastic resonance. And, you know, you can imagine how thrilled I thrilled my girlfriend is about that. She hates it. But uh, I, I, one of the challenges for me is understanding that that's uh, probably not true for everybody. Certainly the athletes that have lots of stuff going on in their life. So one of the battles for me is understanding that as long as we can, uh, our methods can express these concepts or, or honor these concepts, the athletes don't have to have a real, uh, you know, rich understanding of the stuff that underpins it. If they ask a question, then we'll absolutely have a conversation. As you can imagine, uh, the athlete that we had that we started asking her to spin the ball when we were asking her to hit a float serve, she, she was a little skeptical. So we said, yeah, here's, here's a little bit of the concept. And then very quickly she got bored and said, okay, I'll just try it anyways. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, if they're interested and it comes up a little bit uh, and maybe some very general concepts like we may ask, we, we may introduce the idea that, hey, practice is a search. And as we talked about before, your responsibility as a learner is to fill in this map, this metaphorical map, so to speak. We may talk about stuff like that. Are, are we going to say, hey, you know, Nikolai Bernstein in the 1930s, uh, you know, studied movement variability and here's what he found? No, there, there's not a lot of value, at least as I understand it, to that, unless this happens to be somebody really, really strange who who is also really uh, interested in it. We had an athlete a couple of years ago who's actually now the volunteer at the University of Utah as a coach, and she's going to be outstanding. And she, for whatever reason, was fascinated by this stuff too. So we could get a little bit deeper into it. But for the most part, no, it's, it's, they need to be thinking about um, their performance. They need to be thinking about their learning process. They don't necessarily need to be aware of the, the design of it or the methodology behind it. You're not nice. throwing it on the whiteboard like this is a differential learning drill. This is a constraints-led drill. Yeah. Nope. 
Yeah, we wouldn't do that. And that's uh, that's actually an interesting idea. Now, now I got to go. <laughs> now you got to go on. But yeah, um, no, we, we just say, hey, here's the activity. Here's the, the rules, so to speak, the constraints. We call them rules in our gym. But here's the rules and uh, here's how we're going to evaluate it and go explore. And uh, we do stuff like that. And, uh, and you know what? I think a lot of times the kids are none the wiser. They're, they're not, they're going, okay, sounds good. We'll, we'll do that. <laughs> I think it, oftentimes a constraints led approach tends to be pretty fun, you know, because you're, you're uh, a lot of times it's, it, you, you're trying to gamify things. So you're taking a little bit of a game spaced approach. Um, which the athletes love. It's not, it's not a repetition after repetition approach. I think you can soothe some anxiety uh, and that's actually been evidenced in the literature a lot. If you, if you're focusing on uh, promoting an external focus of attention and uh, things like that. So usually they're not, they're not going, man, why do we have to do this again? Usually they're like, all right, this sounds fun. We'll try this. You know? So, but so no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go differential learning or, or concerns. So if you did have a, again, if this is, you know, completely your gym and you got a two hour practice, yeah. what percentage of it would have, you know, of all the drills you're running would have a constraint involved in it or some sort of, I mean, you know, beyond the typical, like we have a net up there and, you know, an added rule we'll say yeah. that you would. Um, a lot. Yeah. A lot of them. I, I think, uh, again, it goes back to what, what, uh, Part of this, the crux of this, and I think one of the reasons that coaches a lot of times get a little hesitant uh, is because so many answers from an ecological perspective or from the constraints-led approach uh, end up being, well, it depends. And uh, if you're going to ask, hey, what drill should we do for, for improving our perfect pass percentage, right? That's something that people would want to do or their passing average. Uh, from a little more traditional prescriptive approach, you go, okay, well, we need to do this activity. I think in a constraint set approach, you have to go, okay, why is our perfect pass percentage not, not where we want it? Or why do we want to improve? And then that's going to become an issue with uh, how our group and each individual in it uh, interacts with the tasks. And we have to figure out their specific interactions with the task. And the thing that's hard is when you consider, like we, we stop training passing one person at a time. We don't pass with one person at a time anymore because the, the part of the, the first thing you do as a passer is you decide, am I passing or not? Is this going to be me or somebody else? And when you take that out, you're, you're shifting the task. Part of the task of passing in a match is deciding, am I going to, to receive the server as the person next to me? And so we've gone to just two people and now we have to understand how Susie and Sally, what behaviors are emergent when those two pass next to each other. And those may be entirely different when it's Susie and Cindy and so on and so forth. So uh, it goes back to really spending a lot of time studying the emergent behaviors of each of these systems and subsystems. So a subsystem being this group of passers, this setter hitter relationship, also a subsystem being just the setter herself and just to hit her herself and so on and so forth. So it takes all these things into consideration. And then you have the, the trick is the art, so to speak, is being able to design the appropriate activities to address these problems that are coming up and giving them opportunities to explore better solutions. So um, if it were entirely my gym, I think most of the activities would have uh, some form of a constraint. Um, there's a guy named Fabian Oda, who was a goalkeeper at NC state. And now he's the goalkeeping coach at, uh, a major team in the top league in Germany for soccer. 
He's also getting his PhD. He introduced this thing called the periodization of skill training framework. And uh, he talked about uh, how there's uh, coordination training and, you know, skill adaptation training and then performance training. And he, a little bit like strength conditioning, right? You go through periods of like high reps, low weight, high weight, low reps, so on and so forth. And I obviously not a <laughs> strength and conditioning guy, but um, he applied some of those same, the, the same construct to actual learning skills. And so he found that uh, before a competition, uh, it's probably a good idea to turn down the variability, to make the constraints way more representative uh, and to, to, to exist kind of in the sport or to train in the sport um, rather than these, these activities like we discussed before with the passing. The day before a, a match, we probably don't want our passers then setting the second ball. We want our setter setting the second ball. And we want to setting a hitter that's hitting against a blocker. And that's when it's going to look a little bit more like the game. It's also when we can spend a little more time evaluating performance, you know, looking at numbers from practice. How did she hit? How did she serve? Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the day, uh, you know, depending on your setup, the day before, the two days before a competition. So it would depend on the time of week, the time of year, all these factors come into play. But um, yeah, generally, I think a lot of the activities would be constrained um, to help guide this search for, for better solutions to the problems that they're going to encounter in competition. I'm curious, uh, do you ever, I'm, I'm sure there's another uh, common kind of, I don't know, fight against this is do you ever see someone who's, you know, maybe passing effectively uh, and, you know, they have this nice straight and simple platform, you know, that, we, that we've uh, heard, heard a lot. And do you ever, so do you ever use like observation, observational learning there, or like modeling, like look at how she's passing the ball. Um, you know, it looks like that's effective for her. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is a great, uh, uh, a great concept. And it's, it's expressed a little differently. Obviously, the effects of observational learning have been documented in lots of different ways and to different degrees, right? There's, there's some studies and groups that say, yeah, it's, it's the best thing ever. It's better than instruction. There's some groups that are saying, yeah, it's good. It's about the same as instruction. There's some groups that are saying, hey, why are we talking about instruction? <laughs> and so uh, the academic space is a little bit uh, scattered in terms of observational learning, but it's a, a well-researched topic from an ecological standpoint. And this is a, uh, an area that I've been discussing a lot with the people that are mentoring me in this stuff. Um, what you're looking for from an observational learning standpoint is a couple of things. First, you're looking for people who have similar organismic constraints. So you think of organismic features, right? Instead of saying constraints. So people maybe who are of similar size, of similar jumping ability, uh, you could say have similar levels of experience. They're playing at similar levels. You, you could slice that up a bunch of different ways, but you're going to want to use the models um, that have, uh, you know, similar uh, features uh, as the as the person that you, you want to, to get any benefit from observation i've even heard like physically there's benefits there to see like you know they're obviously like left-handed things like that but like i don't know similar like hair color or like just seeing someone that's like similar oh, wow. to you yeah I don't know. yeah you know I've, i haven't heard hair color I've, I've heard more of like the the uh you know physiological features okay. that we would think of like arm length and yeah maybe that's know, probably more height and yeah. stuff like that but that yeah. you know i guess why wouldn't it? You know, that yeah. makes sense. You know, yeah. that, uh, but I think, uh, so you're, you're looking for that to start, you know, you're looking for some, some, something that the, that the observer could see themselves in, you know, for me, you know, I was not a particularly great athlete. If you started putting uh, videos uh, or, you know, I was supposed to observationally learn from Micah Christensen. I, <laughs> 
he's a lot more physically gifted than I ever even dreamed of being. And so he's able to do stuff. His, his organismic constraints allow him emergent behaviors that I'm not going to be capable of. So uh, having some, some uh, crossover there, I think is important. The other thing is if you're encouraging learning as a search and not as a perfection of something, then, then one of the, the concepts that, that I've discussed at length with Dr. Davids and people like that is uh, using uh, kind of like almost like a buffet of people uh, who are, who are, there's, their outcomes are invariant. So they are all having success and yet they're doing it in slightly different ways. So maybe, uh, you know, if you want to talk about attacking, maybe this person has a little bit longer approach and maybe this person who kind of looks like you has a little bit shorter approach and maybe the angles of approaches are different and maybe the shot selection is different. Maybe the frequency with which they uh, attack and score using the block versus not. Um, and so you give them, uh, you know, like a buffet of options and we use it like a, the, the montages on, on data video or data volley or whatever. And, uh, you can use that. And what it does is it encourages them to explore. This is all theoretical. Obviously. It encourages them to explore, um, from an observational learning standpoint. And what they're observing is goes back to this Bernstein approach of repetition without repetition. They're not observing a specific repetitive movement. What they're observing is uh, people solving the same problem in different ways and it could spur exploration. Wow, I never thought of running that far inside and hitting it back towards the line. I never even thought of that. I, I never even came up, but here's this girl who's doing it who kind of jumps like me and moves like me and looks like me and uh, she tried it. Now I can try it too. So it, observational learning could be a way to encourage search, not necessarily a way to reinforce some optimal solution. This is obviously on the ecological side of things, but yeah, it's, it's uh, another hotly debated topic in the field for sure. Well, we had another topic we wanted to dive into, but we've obviously found a passion of yours and we have lots of questions and are trying to you know, learn about it. So I think we'll, we don't want to take more of your time but stop sure. there, but hopefully get back to, um, we're going to get into some of your uh, understanding of the science behind deliberate practice and growth mindset. So yeah, um, would love to follow up and do that. Sure. Um, but there's a, I think there's a lot of really valuable stuff for people to chew on and to question the way they're coaching now and to go out and explore and, and, and find, um, you know, find more about this. And I think, yeah, I'm just thankful all the work that you've done to help uh, uh, explain it to us today. Andrew's got a question. I think he woke up again. <laughs> yeah, Casey, I, I just wondering if, um, <coughs> you know, beyond the scholarly resources and the really deep academia, if there are any good resources that you would recommend for that are in more basic terminology, something that, um, you know, newer coaches can understand or, you know, really anyone who isn't deep in the, in the thick of it. Yeah. And Andrew's asking for a friend, not that he would need <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. That's no, sitting no. next to me. <laughs> no, uh, that, that's important. I think it really is because uh, this stuff can get in the weeds pretty quickly and uh, it can get really overwhelming. Um, social media is a little bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, a lot of my, uh, a lot of things that's, a lot of access that I find to papers and stuff like that is following some of these researchers on social media and they tend to present their their information a little more casually and not so rigidly as they would. So Twitter's a, a relatively uh, good 
medium. I would be very careful. It's oftentimes very difficult to explain these concepts in 280 characters or less. Um, there's a, there's this podcast obviously is a great resource. Uh, but if you're interested in, in specifically this ecological side of coaching and skill adaptation and things like that, there's a podcast from a guy in the UK named Stuart Armstrong. It's called the talent equation. And I would highly recommend people, uh, kind of get familiar with that. He introduces, or I'm sorry, he interviews, uh, in a really casual setting, uh, scientists, researchers, and also practitioners and kind of across the gamut. It's a really cool deal. He's a great guy. In fact, at some point, I would recommend having him on the show because he's kind of sits in that space in between practice and academia and not in between, but kind of a foot in both sides. And um, the other thing that I think the most important one, to be completely honest with you, Andrew, is don't be afraid um, to reach out to these people doing the research. Every single time I've done this, um, and it's been at this point, I'm probably uh, working on you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 different people that I interact with on some level of frequency, maybe every six months, but uh, that, are, that are researchers. First of all, they're so appreciative that people are actually trying to apply their work. It's incredible. I was thinking, hey, here's this big time scientist that's going to be like uh, some knucklehead is and, and uh, Dr. Davids, Dr. Fairbrother, Dr. Perry, Rob Gray, all of these people, they're just so thankful that their work is getting disseminated among practitioners. They're really appreciative. And uh, they're, they do an incredible job at explaining this stuff uh, in more layman's terms. And uh, they're really good at saying, yeah, yeah, I, I know stochastic resonance. Forget that term. It's a ridiculous term and you have no business needing to know it. Uh, but here's kind of what it's suggesting in way more easily digested terms. And so that to me has been the biggest thing. It's not Twitter. It's not podcast. It's going to be these direct interactions with the, uh, the empirical community, the scientific community, that's been uh, really powerful for me. And uh, I would highly recommend, and I think if I were to, to hope that anybody took anything from this, it would be don't, don't um, uh, implement a constraints-led approach or any of the concepts of ecological dynamics because I say it's, it's a viable model. My hope is that, uh, that people are encouraged to go interact with this stuff themselves, whether it's in a more casual setting, uh, like the talent equation or, or on Twitter or in a more, you know, academic setting where they're reading the articles. I would hope everybody, you know, and Dr. Davis is going to kill me for saying this, but I hope everybody looks him up and says, Hey, do you have a second to chat about this stuff? Cause, uh, that's where the good stuff is. These, these people care about this work. They understand it better than we ever will as coaches. Um, and they can, they can, uh, in a really elegant way, articulate it uh, at a level that, that is probably most appropriate for us as practitioners. But yeah, that, that's what I think of is uh, just get in touch with the community if you can. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Casey. This was great. Tons of great info in there and I'm excited to go back and listen and, and learn. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. And uh, I, I'm not, I can't say I'm super interested in my own episode, but whatever the next one is after that, <laughs> I'm already looking forward to it. These things are awesome. You guys are great. Cool.